I always wanted to be a gangster, a drug dealer, a pimp, a player, a hustler. Marvin picks it up and stops it. To Marvin, pretty play. Two for Marvin Barnes. One hand jump, up and in. Marvin Barnes and the Spirits of St. Louis existed for only two short years. The Spirits are the NBA's 31st team. They transformed both basketball and the business of pro sports. Marvin, a jumper over Paul. Yes! The Spirits may be more relevant today than when the ABA folded 40 years ago. It was almost like an all-star team. We had a lot of guys that could play. We had a chance to win it all with the talent we had on the team. With five, the jumper! Yes! Yes! They had as much talent as anybody, but they would just self-destruct. We didn't care about the game. We wondered where the next party was at, where that candy at, where them girls at. I would sing hookers to the hotel room with some of the greatest players in the game. They say drain them. Have sex with them till he can't move. Marvin Barnes was a bad guy. He was accused of hitting one of his teammates with a tire iron. He was thrown out for sucker punching opponents. His own teammate coined the nickname Bad News. Marvin Barnes only cared about one person, Marvin Barnes. One day out of the blue, he just disappeared. He was gone, and for 10 days he was missing. I remember saying to the owners, damn, I didn't know I was this good. I need more money. For all the trouble that Marvin caused, I still wanted Marvin with me. The short jump, Marvin, yes. Barnes is on fire. Compared to the NBA, the ABA was fabulous. The league was in the entertainment business. If a fight would break out and you stayed on the bench, you were in big trouble. The ABA began to fall apart and either a merger was gonna happen or we were going out of business. The Spirits owners, they really wanted to be part of the NBA. And when that couldn't happen, they devised their own plan. Hundreds of millions of dollars have flowed into the coffers of the Spirits of St. Louis. It's like hitting megabucks. They have the greatest settlement in all of professional sports history. If you wanted to take a single franchise that captured everything, just about everything, that was crazy about the ABA, look no further than the Spirits of St. Louis. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings and salutations. Hello, friends. My name is Tim Hanlon. And of course, you have found Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast excursion each and every week into the wacky and and sometimes tragic world of what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for coming in. Uh, Welcome to the proceedings. And uh, the ABA is uh, what we're kind of tackling today uh, and a a bit of an extension of that story. You heard the clip there, of course, Uh, the uh, the promo for the great movie called Free Spirits by our pal Dan Forer, uh, the ESPN 30 documentary about the two year wonder of the spirits of St. Louis in the last two years of the American Basketball Association. Uh, in many respects, almost emblematic, not only as a, as a team by itself, but also of the the broader ABA generally in terms of the wackiness, the craziness, uh, the ups and downs, if you will, uh, of that league. And uh, we highly recommend, of course, uh, as part of your uh, education as we get into this episode in a few moments uh, to not only find that documentary and, and enjoy it uh, immensely, but also listen to our episode eight, our interview with Dan Forer, uh, as we uh, discuss not only the team, but also uh, perhaps the, uh, the the most uh, notable name associated with that franchise uh, and beyond. 
uh, which is the topic of our conversation this week. His name was Marvin Barnes, a.k.a. Bad News Barnes. And uh, it is a story of of talent uh, wasted uh, over time and uh, ultimately tragedy, as, as we're going to get into uh, with our guest this week, Mike Carey. Uh, the uh, borderline legendary sports writer uh, uh, in the in Boston for for many, many years. And we're going to get into uh, the life and times of uh, this most enigmatic character uh, named Marvin Barnes, you know, a, a tremendous talent uh, in the early 70s. Uh, he could light up the boards and at Providence College, he led them into the final four uh, and, uh, and and tremendous seasons uh, of, uh, of basketball glory uh, at the collegiate level. And uh, was one of the most sought after uh, draft picks, both from the NBA and the ABA. But he went to the St. Louis Spirits. Let's put it way. His talent on the basketball court was uh, was unquestioned when he was paying attention and when he was uh, was focused. Uh, you heard Bob Costas, who, uh, as you may know, was uh, the uh, the voice of the Spirits uh, coming right out of uh, of Syracuse as a as a, a cub announcer fresh out of college and, and his first sort of professional play-by-play gig. And uh, his preface of this book by Mike Carey, which is called Bad News, The Turbulent Life of Marvin Barnes, which we're going to get into in a few moments. The preface alone by Bob is, is it really puts it all into uh, into perspective. Uh, you know, he he basically said that, uh, and, and we're going to get into it, uh, Marvin Barnes was not only one of the great untold stories of American sports, but you know, in terms of, of his playing capabilities, he Costas has has been said to say that Barnes has was one of the best basketball players he ever saw. You know, for example, Julia Serving, right, the personification of the ABA. There were times, there were nights, Costas recollects that that Barnes completely outplayed Julia Serving, right, the best uh, and legendary players of the ABA. Not not sort of you know kept up with him, but literally. Wipe the court with him, you know, one on one as the better of the two players. Moses Malone, right, uh, broke into the ABA the same year as Marvin Barnes did. And we all know what happened to Malone. He had a a long time, long term uh, Hall of Fame career across both the ABA and the NBA. He was that Malone was the NBA uh, MVP for for three years uh, uh, in his uh, career. People forget that Marvin Barnes in the 1974-75 season, his rookie season, he was the ABA's rookie of the year. He was a tremendous talent. He could light it up. I mean, there were there were games where he had 40, 50 points a game. Um, but uh, as we're going to get into with, with Mike Carey in just a few moments, uh, the story of Marvin Barnes is absolutely one of, of tremendous talent wasted or wasted away by uh, ultimately a personality uh, a driven uh, astray by uh, drug addiction that uh, frankly haunted uh, Barnes for uh, the majority of his adult life. Uh, and we'll see and we'll hear uh, in, in, frankly, some very personal terms. Uh, uh, you know, Mike Carey got to know uh, Marvin Barnes uh, a lot during his um, post-professional career, or at least the tail end of it. Uh, and it, this was a lifestyle and a, uh, frankly, just a a corralling of life by uh, by drug addiction uh, that uh, in many cases, Marvin Barnes attempted uh, many opportunities to get out of the grips of it and uh, it just continued to sort of fall flat and out of uh, sobriety uh, despite some of the best efforts. And look, you listen to some of the clips or find some of those clips of Marvin Barnes not only playing, but being interviewed and, and a very jovial uh, a guy, a very, uh, uh, you know, uh, well-meaning 
soul, if you will. Uh, it, certainly in the years, uh, in his later years, was trying to basically create himself as an example of what not to do uh, and trying to warn kids and young adults to, uh, you know, to, to find a, a straighter path and, and recognize uh, the pitfalls of what uh, their lives might have uh, sort of fallen into. But, um, you know, despite of all the opportunities and the efforts and, and to, to, to climb that mountain, and, and there were certain times, as Mike will tell us in our conversation, uh, that Marvin seemed to be kind of a, approaching that summit and conquering his devils and his fears and his uh, his trials and tribulations with drugs. But it just always seemed to sort of uh, fall back and ultimately it consumed him uh, near the end. So this is a story not only of, of tragedy and sadness, but maybe of uh, of inspiration about, uh, you know, a life not wasted, but uh, but actually well lived in that it serves as a reminder and as a representative uh, life to uh, to learn from. Uh, certainly, the man was uh, very talented uh, and uh, and the tragedies that befell him are not uh, in vain. And, and we're going to get into a very compelling conversation uh, at sometimes very personal conversation with our guest this week, Mike Carey, the author of Bad News, The Turbulent Life of Marvin Barnes. Um, the book is fantastic. Uh, the conversation uh, is uh, also very interesting, and I encourage you to listen to all of it and enjoy it. Uh, and we present it to you in all its uh, in its context, and we can't wait to uh, deliver it to you in just a moment or two. But before we get there, we want to tell you about our pals, Mack Weldon, the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. It's designed to be, frankly, the most comfortable underwear and socks and shirts and undershirts and hoodies and sweatpants. You get the idea that you'll ever wear. Mack Weldon, uh, also the pioneers of antimicrobial technology that ensures that all those basics in your clothing line, guys, will eliminate odor. Now, it doesn't mean you can get out of washing the items, friends. No, no, no. You got to do that on a regular basis, of course. But when you're wearing them and you're sweating and doing whatever you're doing, you know, you're, you're guaranteed essentially to, to not stink up the joint uh, as you uh, uh, comfort and luxuriate in the. Uh, in these great clothes by our pals at Mac Weldon. And if you go to MacWeldon.com and use the promo code good seats uh, for your first order, you're going to get 20% off all these fine items. And uh, some of those items obviously include things like underwear. If you're a boxers guy, they got you covered. If you're a briefs guy, they got you covered. If you're into both of them, because the situation may be different uh, depending on the, uh, on the day and the time, if you know what I mean, uh, no problems there. And obviously, Mack Weldon, well-known and well-regarded for their extensive line of undergarments and underwear. But also, as I said earlier, lots of other basics that uh, you'll need. And I, I'll tell you from personal experience, their sock collection, which I have uh, a ton of I've gotten over the last couple of weeks uh, by going to MacWeldon.com and using that promo code GOODSEATS. I got 20% off all of my, uh, frankly, all my socks that uh, are going to set me up for the uh, the fall and the winter and even the spring. They're well-crafted. They uh, they sit on the top of your calf. Uh, they come in a tremendous array of colors and designs. And Lord knows my wife will tell you that I could uh, have used uh, a, a refresh, shall we say, for my sock collection. And Mack Weldon has come to uh, come to the rescue, as well as a bunch of uh, uh, undershirts. I got a sweatshirt out of the deal uh, and uh, also um, a few new boxers. Yes, that's the way I kind of go, uh, if you know what I mean. And you, too, can enjoy all the great stuff that Mac Weldon uh, has to offer. Like I said, they're comfortable, they're well-designed, and that antimicrobial technology hoo -hoo, keeps you sweat and odor-free 
Uh, and it's uh, it's a tremendous uh, set of stuff that Mac Weldon has. And again, we've got a promo code for you. And it's 20% off, off of your first order at MacWeldon.com. It's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N. MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code GOODSEATS, all one word, GOODSEATS, at MacWeldon.com. And you're going to get 20% off your first order from our new pals and our great sponsors and our friends at Mac Weldon. Thank you, Mac Weldon. We appreciate it. All right, let us uh, move on nice and smooth. See into our conversation, our very interesting one, and uh, it uh, it gets very personal, uh, and but very intriguing uh, with our new pal, Mike Carey, as we talk about the life and times of marvelous, or depending on your perspective, bad news, Marvin Barnes, the uh, St. Louis Spirits ABA standout. And here's our conversation we had just a couple of weeks back. Please enjoy. You can't talk about the the, the spirits of St. Louis uh, and then by extension, the ABA, without talking about Marvin Barnes. And lo and behold, uh, you've written sort of the definitive biography and, and amazing and not so great at the end story of of this perhaps most enigmatic uh, player and star uh, that ever played in the ABA and hence the reach out. And, and I'm just amazingly uh, uh, about the story. I'm, I'm amazed at it. And I'm also very curious as to how you even got in- involved with uh, the, the late great Marvin Barnes. So maybe we can start there. What's your background and, and how, how do you, how do you bump into and or get enmeshed with the story of Marvin Barnes? I was a news editor at the Boston Herald American, and uh, I love sports. I, I, you know, I didn't cover uh, sports at the time, but teammate of uh, Marvin's, a guy named uh, Kevin Stakem, I got to know him a little bit. He, he was a friend of mine, and uh, he said, uh, "Why don't you do a story on on Marvin Barnes?" and I, I was a bit reluctant because he I knew his reputation was, you know, very sketchy. I knew he had been to gotten in a, a couple jams, uh, robbed the city bus when he was in high school. He also pled guilty to hitting a teammate at Providence with a tire iron. So I, I really didn't want to do it, but. Uh, Stakem said, no, he's really gotten a bad reputation from this thing. He doesn't deserve it. Would you look into it? So I said, sure. When was this? This was after his ABA days and during his NBA days? When was this sort of suggestion that you reach out and sort of do a story on him? It was the fall of 75. And he had just gotten, uh, Marvin had uh, played two years in the ABA and then it folded. Uh, and he had just been taken by the Detroit Pistons in the uh, ABA dispersal draft. I didn't know him, but I, I was just, just leery of doing anything with him because he just had a reputation of being a thug. But I, I respected Kevin Stakem because, he, you know, he said, no, he's not he's not a thug. You, you'll like the guy. Uh, so I called up and... I was going to meet him at a, at a Celtic Pistons game in Hartford, Connecticut. And I, it was all arranged. I, so I drive down to Hartford and uh, Marvin won't talk to me. 
you know, I said, why won't he, why won't he talk to me? And uh, he had Mar Marvin had like a hotel suite uh, for the game, and I was supposed to meet him in his room after the game. And when I get up there, there's these two huge guys standing at the door, and they won't let me in. And they so I said, just tell them that Mike Carey's here. And he, the guy comes back and he says. Marvin doesn't want to talk to you. So I go home. I, I, I give up on the story. I, I say, this is ridiculous. Uh, I go home. I think about it. And I go, you know, I'm going to do this story whether he likes it or, or not. I end up uh, buying the, the, the court transcripts of his uh, case, the, both his criminal case and his civil case. Uh against the, the the criminal case was for, for assault for hitting this Providence teammate named Larry Convertis uh, with a tire iron. I read it over and, and uh, you know, he, he, it was two or three days into the trial and, and Marvin decided he was going to plead guilty. So he pleads guilty and uh, about six months later, He's, he's about to join the Pistons. He gets sued by Convertis in civil court. And so I get the, I get both transcripts and they're, you know, they're thick, thick transcripts. And I start reading the civil, the civil trial because the, the criminal trial didn't really only went for a day. And then Marvin pled guilty. So I, there was nothing in there to, to interest me. And it, it certainly, I think they only got through one witness or two witnesses. But it, so I, 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 I get the civil trial and it's huge. And it's I read the whole transcript. And by the end of the transcript, I'm convinced that Marvin didn't hit the guy uh, with the tire iron. And uh, I read the transcript of the civil trial, which goes into a great amount of detail. And I interview not not only Marvin and the guy that he he's he got in the fight with, but I also interviewed the the team doctors, the coaches, the lawyers, the judge, every everybody. And uh, I end up I end up writing the story, and it, it actually won a couple of awards uh, for investigative reporting. So that's that's how I got to meet Marvin. So this is after his departure, and we'll get into that in probably in a few minutes, right? The, the spirits of St. Louis and going to Detroit, um, but he couldn't go. To, he couldn't play for the Pistons because of this case from a few years back that was now coming to trial. Is that is that how it's sort no, of? No, no. I didn't meet Marvin until uh, until he was with Detroit, but he had already played two years with the with the spirits. It's the St. Louis. I but I didn't know him. I, I didn't know him when he was with the the Spirits. I didn't know him when he was with Providence College. But you know, for some reason, Stakem thought that he was getting uh, uh, getting a lot of bad publicity for for this attack with a tire iron uh, that was undeserved. I mean, in in reading it. In reading the transcripts, there was just so much 
so much evidence that, you know, that Marvin wasn't, didn't do it, that I came to, you know, and, and believe me, I, I, after Marvin stiffed me for that interview, I, I thought, you know, I said, oh, this guy's a jerk. He's just going to, you know, he, you know, there was no reason. I, I was just so mad at him. I, I said, you know, uh, th- I'm going to do the story anyhow. And he, he you know, uh, I don't care what Stakem wants or anything. I, I was, I was out to, to, you know, if he, if he hit the kid with tire iron, it wasn't, wasn't going to be a, a great story from Marvin's perspective. But the more I read the, the background on this, and it all happened, you know, it happened when uh, in Marvin's junior year, I want to say, they, it, was, it was at a practice. Marvin got hit by Cadvertis with an elbow. You know, he, he ended up going to the dentist. He, he was going to lose two teeth. Uh, the dentist glued the teeth back in, but he, he, he was going to lose the teeth. It was. It was. It wasn't even a practice. It was a. It was like a, a scr- an inner squad scrimmage that the that this happened. At. But he, he copped to it though, even though, and then after the fact, with your reporting, to even underline it. He he pleaded guilty and essentially paid some money and was placed on probation. Right. That's how he then went on to his the rest of his collegiate career and and the beginnings of his pro career. Right. And this that is where you sort of came into the story was sort of after that fact. Right. Right. I mean, he when he pled guilty, he was placed on probation, you know, and that that should have been the end of it. But in Marvin's first year as a pro, no, I take that back in Marvin's. I think I think the probation was for three years. And in Marvin's first year with Detroit, he gets caught carrying an empty gun onto an airplane. And uh, it's just uh, back then, there just weren't any hijacking, you know, worries. I mean, you it, it was just when he got caught with the gun, it was just a misdemeanor. But it, it, the, even though it was just a misdemeanor, it violated his parole. Uh, so he had to spend six months in prison. And that's when. Stakem came to me and said, "Would you do a story on this guy? He really, people don't realize what a nice guy he is." And blah blah blah. And I said, oh, "Okay, I'll do it." And and of course, after his uh, first year with Detroit, he he served his prison time in uh, in, in a prison in, in Cranston, Rhode Island. And my when my story came out, he called me up. And, you know, I didn't expect to hear from him because he, he didn't want to talk to me for the for the story. But he calls me up and he says, I love the story. It was great. My curiosity got the best of me, really. I said, uh, OK, I'll meet you down. At, you know, and he was in prison at the time. He called me from prison. And so I said, OK, I'll come down and visit you. And he wanted to meet me. And I was sort of curious to meet him. And that's how we our relationship began. Uh, so, that, so that's interesting. In, 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 in some respects, it almost sounds like this piece, I won't say exonerated him, but it's certainly, it's almost, it was like a sort of a new sort of piece of evidence or, 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 or storyline or narrative that, you know, arguably could have helped him a little earlier in this whole process. Right. But 
in many respects, it almost seems like it, it kind of, at least for the time being, gave him some level of, I don't know, uh, validation, justification. Uh, uh, I didn't do this or, or you know, I, I'm being overly uh, uh, admonished for, for, frankly, something that I really never did, even though I admitted it. Something like that? Yeah. I, I mean, he and, and his explanation for why he pleaded guilty made, made a lot of sense to me. I, I think, it would, you know, he he had a, a, a you know, he had his, a, a contract at stake. You know, he, he was still at Providence College. And, you know, he, he was going to make a couple couple million dollars. I mean, it, there's, which was big, big money back then. Um, the only thing that if he pled, if he pled not guilty and was found to be guilty, he, he was facing a minimum of three years in, in prison. So from his point of view, you know, here's a kid from the ghetto who, who you know, grew up in a. Uh, one bedroom apartment with his mother, his his sister, uh, his uh, his father, who was an alcoholic and a, and a wife abuser. Uh, so there were four people in this little dinky uh, apartment. In you know, it wasn't a very nice neighborhood either. It was you know, and and, and Providence back then. It was almost entirely white. Uh, it, it was real, really hard for a, a black kid growing up in Providence to to get a fair shake. So, you know, when Marvin was going to court to to defend himself against a criminal charge, he listened to the lawyer. Uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know how much, you know, what the outcome would have been. Uh, nobody knows that, but he decided to take, you know, he he took the guilty plea. You know, it was just supposed to be probation, but he ended up, like I say, he ended up getting uh, getting charged with uh, bringing an unloaded gun onto an airplane. And it was even though it was just a misdemeanor, that was that was a violation of his his probation terms, and uh, you know, so he ended up having to go to prison. So. When I met him, I mean, it, it was at the it was at the prison. So, so a whole bunch of questions, right? So, sure. Uh, one, the first of which kind of strikes me as being very interesting and maybe almost uh, surprising, in that uh, you're meeting up with him after his one plus year, two almost two years of ABA spirits stardom, if you will, and, and interesting stories. But so he didn't violate the probation during that period of time in the ABA, then, I'm guessing. So that's interesting how he wouldn't have, if you will, tripped the tripped the wire prior to that. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, it was a dumb thing for Marvin to do. I mean, some of some of Marvin's actions, you just you just shake your head at. You know, how could he do that? Why would he do that? And as as I would later find out, I mean, he had a fascination with with gangsters. Uh, he just while he was in St. Louis, he met uh, he met a guy named Roosevelt Patch Beckton, B E C T O N, and they became great friends. And Marvin would find out very shortly after meeting him that Beckman was just 
a, the, the Midwest kingpin for, for marijuana. Uh, he sold marijuana all across the country, and he was based out of St. Louis, and that's how Marvin met him. And Beckton loved Marvin, invited him to all these orgies and parties and uh, events that that he was throwing for his uh, all these millionaires who were buying marijuana by the ton. So Marvin, Marvin would be at these parties and he'd, he'd be walking around these parties nude with a, 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 a 45 Colt slung over his shoulder and, uh, you know, never got in any trouble with it and, and wasn't really a part of, of uh, Beckman's, you know, drug distribution gang, but he, 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 he was like the, uh, he was like a, the public relations man for Beckman. I mean, Beckman would bring in, would fly in these buyers from around the country, uh, and he'd take them to a spirits game, and Mar Marvin would come over and say hello to these guys, and then he'd, uh, Beckman and, and Marvin and a couple other members of Beckman's gang would take these guys out for dinner, and, uh, wine and dine them. And, uh, you know, Marvin was great for this guy's business. And eventually he, he made Marvin a minor partner. He, Marvin was making probably almost as much money, uh, working for Beckton than he was as a, as a member of these spirits. And of course, nobody knew, I mean, people knew that he was friends with this guy. Uh, but but nobody knew the extent of, you know, what Marvin was doing. I mean, he wasn't doing any, like I say, he wasn't selling any drugs. Um, but he, he had a fascination with gangsters. Always did from the time he was a little kid. Who found who, though? Was it was it, was it Becton finding Barnes and finding a mark slash, you know, a, a bright light uh, and, and, and sexy at that because he's playing pro basketball or, or kind of was it the other way around? No, not really. I mean, uh, you know, Beckton obviously liked Marvin a lot, but Beckton had other athletes that he'd invite to the, they had these wild orgies. That's all I can, I mean, they were orgies. I mean, you'd, you'd knock on the door, um, you'd take off your clothes and, and you, you know, you'd have an endless supply of booze, uh, cocaine and, uh, marijuana sitting on, on, on coffee tables and, uh, you know, and, and beautiful women. I, I never attended one, but I, uh, I, I've heard a lot of stories about them. Uh, and, and Beckman was, a very well known to, especially to the black athletes in St. Louis, the baseball players, the, the football players, uh, some of the, some of the basketball players, but, when teams from out of out of state came in, they'd stay at a hotel that was maybe. And Beckman also owned a uh, a, uh, a nightclub, and uh, so when teams would come in for a game in St. Louis, no matter what the sport was, they'd go to Beckman's nightclub, which was only like a block away from the two biggest hotels in St. Louis. So Beckham was a, a real, you know, and, he, and he was a nice guy. I mean, I, I 
I have actually talked to him on the phone a number of times, and you'd never, from the way he talks and from what he has to say, you just never know he was a one of the biggest, you know, marijuana uh, distributors in the country, if not the biggest. By the time Marvin got to got to Detroit, I mean, Beckman was sending him uh, uh, ten thousand bucks every two weeks. Uh, and and that was Marvin's cut of the profits, and uh, Marvin didn't have to do anything for it. Um, you know, so Marvin, you know, Marvin's saying, "Oh, this is a great deal," and uh, you know, it finally caught up to him when he uh, when he got to the spirits, and and I, I I never asked Marvin this, but I'm sure he got that gun as a way of impressing Beckton. Uh, because according to Marvin, all these gangsters carried a weapon. It, it was pretty crazy because here's this guy that's a, a you know, a rookie of the year as in his first year and uh, all-star his second year uh, with the Spirits. And yet, he, he, for Marvin, he's, he's more concerned with, you know, what party am I going to next than what, when, when's our next game? Undeniable talent, right? He obviously had, was making some some decent coin relative to the time. I mean, he was a second round pick in the NBA draft by the Sixers, and then no, no, he was he was no, he wasn't a second round pick. He was the second pick. That's what I meant. He was sec. He was a second pick overall. I'm sorry, in the first round. That's what I meant. Second pick overall. I mean, you know that that uh, and to choose to go to St. Louis, you know that in of itself is eyebrow raising. But still. You know, uh, bidding war and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so it, it wasn't like so. I, was it was he just paranoid? It would seem to me alone, given obviously talent that you know perhaps he, and we'll get into this maybe in a, in a few minutes. But you know, uh, maybe he didn't even know how good he was, or frankly, he did know how good he was, right? Uh, didn't sort of hone it or 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 you know sort of corral it, so to speak. But it would seem to me that that alone, sort of tending to one's budding pro career, given all the expectations and the money, right? Then adding to that a, a fascination slash, I don't know, second side job as a, as a hustler slash, you know, a mob, of, of, you know, attache. I, I don't know. It just seems like a, a, a weird second double life there. Well, for you and me, it would be, but, but for Marvin, it was just, uh, like I say, he loved the gangster world. He, he really did. He, um, um, you know, he grew up as a as a kid, uh, sitting in front of the TV and watching uh, uh, all these episodes of uh, uh, The Untouchables. And uh, you know, he just from the time he was a tiny kid, I mean, he just fell in love with being a gangster. Uh, by by the time he gets to high school, his goal in life, he he didn't think he, he was going to live past twenty one. I mean, he thought he was going to die in the, in a, a shootout in some street. I mean, that's how much of a fascination uh, with crime he had. I mean, he loved being around these guys, but he, he didn't have an act of part in other than, you know, other than uh, being the uh, the host of these orgies, which didn't happen. They, they you know, they were maybe once every two months, uh, you'd get 10, 10 buyers from around the country that would show up and, uh, uh, this guy Beckton, uh, he he'd supply the women, he'd supply the booze, 
it was his it was his way of thanking his best customers for being so loyal. And uh, so Marvin was hired to basically not not just because of his physical size, uh, but because he was he was just a friendly guy, outgoing guy, told jokes, made sure everybody was happy. And that was that's all Beckman wanted from him. Beckman, you know, didn't want him to have any active role in the uh, in the, this drug operation. Um, and so, you know, for Marvin, it was like heaven. I mean, it it, it ended up destroying him because he, ended, you know, from marijuana, it ended up being cocaine, and then later on in life, it, he he started doing heroin, and uh, you know, it, it 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 just eventually it killed him. You know, there, there came a point when he was, you know, as his NBA career uh, kept going, his his stats went right down the tubes. I mean, by the time he got to the Celtics, uh, which was only uh, four years into his career, uh, he, he, he was, you know, he was an addict. It, it was sad to see. I mean, by then I knew him. I mean... By then, I, I knew him, and I knew he had a problem. And, uh, you know, it broke up his marriage. It, uh, it left him broke. It was a sad thing to watch. But let, let's, pick, let's pick up the story as you, as you uh, uh, sort of, I guess, started or established some kind of relationship with him. Because I, it seems to me like you're, you're meeting him at, at a, you know, in retrospect, kind of a, um, I don't call it a pivotal time, but certainly uh, – Going from one sort of extreme and or sort of upward trend, I guess, as a basketball player and as a, as a pro, the career kind of sort of in that other direction, right? I guess you could, you know, it seems like he was going back to the Pistons after he, he's done his uh, he's done his jail time, right? But I, I can't imagine uh, that the Pistons were necessarily welcoming in, with open arms and it maybe even set up, I guess, uh, a bit of a... Uh, convoluted uh, map, I guess, for how he might or might not uh, continue his playing career that started off so so brilliantly, frankly, albeit erratically and and, and quite colorfully in St. Louis. Um, I, I got to think it, it it left a mark on him when not only going back to Detroit, but any of the other teams that he wound up playing in the NBA and then, you know, in minor leagues afterwards. Yeah, he played decently in Detroit. He had a coach that he really liked the uh... Herbie Brown, who was who is Larry Brown's brother. So Marvin, uh, despite the distractions, he played fairly well for for Herbie Brown. Uh, but then they fired Herbie Brown, and uh, Marvin rebelled. Marvin was he 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 hated the the organization. He hated the owner. He hated the general manager. Uh, you know, and he was fiercely loyal to Herbie Brown. So they they finally got rid of you know they they couldn't they couldn't handle him. They just couldn't handle Marvin anymore. I don't want to say he was a full fledged addict, but he was close. And they didn't have a, they didn't have a clue. I mean, the problem is when and especially in the ABA and in the time the time period that Marvin pl- played. Uh, Using cocaine was it, it just wasn't considered a major deal. 
I mean, I've asked a number of players uh, from the ABA uh, and even the early, early 80s when Marvin was in the NBA. I've asked them about, you know, how prevalent were, was drug use among the players when you played. And most of them say their guess is that well over 60 percent of the players used uh, cocaine. It, it was viewed as a, a recreational drug and a somewhat harmless drug. There were a number of guys, all-star players, that, that had a drug habit. Uh, they, they didn't test for drugs back then. So you had guys like George Gervin, David Thompson, uh, Marvin. These are just guys that, off the top of my head, but I, you know, th- there were quite a few big-time stars that were using drugs. And uh, like I say, they, they, didn't have, they didn't have a drug testing program. And um, these guys were so ta- talented. Uh, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't just three or four guys. There were a lot of guys that used it, but uh, you'd be surprised at the names of some of these guys. They'd go out and get high after a game or before a game. It was that prevalent. Well, yeah, I mean, look, this is also, you're talking about young guys, big contracts, and, you know, not unlike, say, the music industry or the the entertainment industry, right, where, I mean, in the mid to late 70s, I mean, you know, Coke was the, you know, was the quote-unquote uh, designer drug of choice, and, and you know, I want to say it was just chalk it up to a different time, but, you know, no, there's no doubt that, that, that it was not only prevalent, but it was, you know, clearly addictive, and, and you know, it's like anything, right? I don't know how much you can use it in moderation because it's such an addictive drug. And but it's clear it got the it got the best of Marvin. But but it seems to me that the seeds of well, some of this obviously has to be psychological profile too. I, you know, you were talking before about sort of him, you know, rebelling and and leaving or effectively leaving, you know, getting all upset when you know the coach that had had sort of brought him along with the Pistons was sort of you know, was out. Of, it was out of the picture. You know, to me, that almost feels like. I mean, you look at the St. Louis days. Uh, it was pretty clear, and maybe because he was such a high draft pick, because they spent so much money on him, and he was the, uh, admittedly, you know, kind of the star player of the team. He was coddled, right? I mean, it seems like they kind of looked the other way with all this sort of, you know, in retrospect, bizarre behavior. Right? I guess they would call that today. They would call that enabling. Yeah, I don't think they knew anything about his uh, drug problems, but. Uh, they knew he was unpredictable. Um, you know, he'd have he'd have he'd have great games and then he'd have terrible games. Uh, you know, for, for him, terrible. For everybody else, probably average. But uh, but Marvin was just such a talent that they they should have fined him for missing practices, missing planes, lack of effort. That there were a number of things they could have fined him for, but they they didn't because he that. The owner loved Marvin. Uh, the general manager, you know, was powerless to because the even if they find Marvin and they would always announce, you know, Marvin's going to be fine for this. And he never was. Uh, because the owner didn't want to find him. I mean, it got so bad that the, Harry Weltman, the, the GM, was just, you know, couldn't figure out what to do because the owner wouldn't let him find him. You know, he could announce there was a fine, but he, Marvin knew he wasn't going to have to pay anything. 
some of the other players on the team, they they they, they weren't mad at Marvin because they knew, you know, this was Marvin. But they were mad at the, the spirits for not trying to uh, influence Marvin in the right way. But it was a crazy team. I mean, the spirits of St. Louis were, uh, you know, they had uh, when in Marvin's rookie year, they also had Gus Gerard, who was a rookie. And they had uh, Fly Williams, who was a rookie. And all three of them were addicted to cocaine by the end of their rookie season. So you had three rookies that were, you know, all using drugs. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether management knew it or not, but they, you know. I mean, Gus Gerard was a, a quiet kid, uh, went to Virginia, um, good player, um, didn't cause any problems, but you had Fly Williams, who was, you know, a crazy, crazy guy. Um, you know, today, Fly Williams is sitting in a uh, uh, a New York prison uh, because he was he, he's on tr- he'll be on trial shortly for selling cocaine and heroin to high school age kids. He was running this heroin ring. Uh, that was a multi-million dollar ring. And uh, uh, the New York City task force eventually caught him. You know, so you had, between him and Marvin, uh, Gus literally wasn't a problem. You know, he he, uh, he hit his habit pretty cleverly. Uh, and eventually it caught up to Gus, and, and his marriage broke up, and uh, his career ended prematurely, and, uh, uh, you know, he, he was the only one of the three of those guys who ended up you know, salvaging his life. I mean, he, he went to rehab, got clean, and stayed clean, ended up being a drug counselor in Texas, and, uh, you know, today is a very productive guy and a, a very inspirational speaker. Uh and he talks quite openly about the problems he had, you know, and so did Marvin. I mean, Marvin would tell uh, in his, in his later years, Marvin would talk, give talks to high school kids. And these talks were, he was a great speaker. He did some good work with, with, uh, with kids, but eventually the drugs, he, he just couldn't say no to drugs. What's this? Hello Fresh. Hello Fresh. Yes, America's number one meal kit, of course. Get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door with Hello Fresh. All you have to do is cook and enjoy. Exactly what I've been doing the last couple of days as we've been enjoying in the Hanlon household some delicious Hello Fresh meals. Not only delicious, but simple and straightforward and easy to make. Hello Fresh makes cooking delicious meals at home of course, a reality, regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. From step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients, you'll have everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. Say goodbye to endless grocery store trips and takeout food. HelloFresh has you covered. Break out of your dinner rut with HelloFresh's over 20 seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. There's something for everyone, from family recipes to calorie-smart and vegetarian and fun menu series like Hall of Fame and Kraft Burgers. HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit, so you know you'll always get something delicious. 
and it's also flexible and fits your lifestyle. Add extra meals to your weekly order, uh, perhaps even adding on yummy uh, uh, additions like garlic bread or even cookie dough. You can easily change your delivery days or your food preferences. Heck, you can even skip a week whenever you need. HelloFresh has got you covered. We love it. Give it a try. I guarantee you're going you're gonna to enjoy it. And here's a great incentive to do so. How about nine free meals? Yes, I said nine free meals when you use the uh, promo code GOODSEATS9 at HelloFresh.com slash GOODSEATS9. That's HelloFresh.com slash GOODSEATS9, the number nine. And make sure you use the uh, promo code GOODSEATS9, and you're going to get nine free meals, courtesy of us and HelloFresh. It's a great deal. And may I suggest when you're choosing those first nine meals, that two of them be the sesame beef tacos with quick pickled veggies and chili sour cream, uh, which we just had last night in the Hamlin household. We loved it tremendously. And then two nights before that, we uh, also had a, a tremendous meal. Uh, the chicken sausage and spinach ricotta ravioli with tomato and lemon. That was thumbs up, too, from the Handlin clan. So that's just two of the nine we could have chosen, but go for it. Nine free meals when you go to HelloFresh.com slash GoodSeats9. Again, HelloFresh.com slash GoodSeats and the number nine. And use that promo code, too, when you're on the site, GoodSeats9, and get nine free meals. Again, from our friends at HelloFresh. We love the food and we love our friends at HelloFresh and you will too. And uh, while you uh, search up that deal and get your uh, your web browser and your order in there, how about a uh, return to our conversation? Do you think, and I know you sort of, you came into this, this story of his, it is pro-career somewhat in medias res, right? I mean, you, you were not there for the St. Louis years. You you, you didn't see him or, or maybe were not sort of uh, innately aware of his Providence days prior to sort of coming into the story years later. Which do you think kind of created the other? Do you think the erratic behavior and the upbringing and the whatever the psychological profile of growing up in, in, a, in a terrible neighborhood and, and, you know, rough childhood and all that kind of stuff begetting the drugs? Or do you think the drugs ultimately kind of enabled the bad behavior and the and the craziness and and ultimately and I want to ask your your thoughts about this his bolting from the uh from the spirits with uh basically leaving the team right which is sort of the ultimate act of craziness well that was uh, leaving the team was a, that was a three day event i mean he he was told by uh a teammate that uh his contract was terrible and he had made a big mistake signing it, and uh, Marvin bought into that and fired his agent. This is Joe Caldwell, the guy that you're talking about that was kind of on yeah, the Joe case Caldwell, of it. yeah. And, and and Marvin went to Caldwell. It wasn't Caldwell going to Marvin, but when Marvin went to Caldwell, Caldwell was the team rep, and Caldwell, you know, uh, listened to Marvin and and he. When he heard the whole thing, he said, "Man, you have a bad deal. You 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 don't have any. You don't even have any guarantees on your contract. If you get injured, uh, they don't have to pay you." And that, you know, Marvin heard that, and he just he just took off. I mean, he, he uh, Caldwell hooked him up with his agent. Uh, Marvin fired the guy that was hiring him, a guy named Bob Wolf, who one of the biggest agents in the business. But I I didn't particularly 
care for the guy, but he was he was a big name. I mean, he represented Bird uh, in you know when Bird came into the the NBA, and uh, so Wolf, Wolf was a, a pretty big guy. But uh, you know, Marvin had been taking money from Wolf for the for for three three of his last four years in college. Uh, Wolf had been sending him. Uh, Money, which which were loans, but still illegal for an agent to do, and uh, that's why Marvin went with with Wolf, and it was Wolf that pushed Marvin to sign with St. Louis rather than signing with Philadelphia. Uh, Wolf was was double dipping. I mean, he got a, he got his ten percent commission from from Marvin, and he also got ten percent commission from the Spirits. So he, Wolf was raking in a ton of dough, and uh, you know, and of course, double dipping is you know, it's just, it's just unethical. Uh, and of course, Wolf didn't tell uh, Marvin that he was taking money from the Spirits because Marvin would have put two and two together and said, "Say, well, why are you pushing me to the Spirits when I'm the second pick in the NBA draft?" But it didn't. It just didn't occur to Marvin that you know, and I don't think he realized the the implications of uh, playing in the ABA. I mean, it was a great league, um, but I think with Marvin's with with the way Marvin thought, with his mindset, uh, he would. I, I'm convinced he would have been far better off uh, if he signed with the NBA because the NBA had structure. Uh, you know, they, I don't think Marvin would have been able to get away with the things that, you know, he got away with in the ABA. You know, it's tough. To, I know he wouldn't have met, you know, he wouldn't have met a guy like uh, Roosevelt Becton. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it, I think he would have gotten more discipline. He, would, he just would have had a more structured life uh, because from day one, in St. Louis, I mean, Marvin could do whatever Marvin wanted. I mean, he was a funny guy. He was a glib guy. Uh, he had a bundle of talent. And, uh, you know, outside of that, the three days that he, he took off and, and went to a pool tournament in, in uh, Akron, Ohio, I mean, uh, in Dayton, Ohio, uh, he, he, he didn't. Didn't cause many problems, and his teammates all loved him. His coach that first year loved him. I mean, the, the thing in doing this book, uh, I didn't find too many teammates or coaches that disliked Marvin. He was a, he was a funny guy. He was a nice guy. You know, he was just a likable guy. And uh, you know, it, it it's a shame what happened to him. It, it's just, you know, and like I say, by the time. He was traded from the Pistons, uh, and he was traded to Buffalo. And yeah, he spent a year in Buffalo. Buffalo Braves, uh, the 77-78 season, yeah. Yeah. And, and by that time, he was he, he, he was uh, he had lost all his all his talent. I mean, he'd have a good game. One one in six or seven games would be good, and the rest of them would, would he'd stink. Uh you know, from Buffalo, he went to the Celtics, uh, started started out, you know, now he's in his, you know, his, 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 he's in the 
you know, he's 20 miles from home, 30 miles from home. And uh, if anything was going to straighten him out, it would have been playing for the Boston Celtics. Uh, but it didn't. And uh, and he, he told the story on, him, on himself. Eventually, he, he's sitting on the Celtics bench with a towel over his head, snorting cocaine. And on the bench the, during a game? During a game. And uh, uh, blood is trickling down his nose. And uh, sitting next to him was Don Chaney, uh, another player and, and, and a good player and a, a good guy. And Chaney, Ch- Chaney looks over and he sees, he, he sees what's going on. And he just sprints to the, the other end of the bench. To get away from Marvin, and uh, you know, and and that was in I think it was in February, and you know Marvin I think that and it was it wasn't the event I mean nobody knew about it except for Cheney and Cheney didn't say anything to anybody, but I that just showed you know it showed how how badly Marvin was ruined and. Uh, you know, it wasn't more than three or four weeks later that uh, Marvin had called in sick for a couple games. And, uh, you know, it, it, he, he wasn't sick. He was he was. Yeah, you know, he, he was hung over. He was he was drugged out. But, he you know, and, and Callens, who was the coach, Dave Callens was a player coach at the time just finally said, you know, cut him. They, they, even, even for all the trouble that, that Marvin caused Dave Cowens, who, you know, the first time Cowens had ever coached, he's a young guy, I think he's 29, 30 years old. They, they make a coaching change. They fire Satch Sanders, uh, who had been the coach for a couple of years, and they decide they're going to hire uh, Dave, you know, at 29 years old or 30 years old to be the coach. Yeah, only, and, and, only a few years older than he was, Marvin. Yeah, they were about the same age. About the same age. Uh, but, you know, even Dave, I mean, you know, Dave, despite all the trouble that Marvin presented, missing practices, missing planes, uh, acting goofy, for, probably from the drugs, um, Dave finally, you know, he had no choice. He said, I'm letting you go, you know. And, and Marvin didn't put up a fight because he knew he had screwed up. Marvin ended up, you know, back in in Providence. And uh, uh, everybody pretty well thought his career was over. But he ended up, you know, he ended up playing uh, another year with the uh, – he got cut, cut from uh, the Clippers – uh, but the Clippers coach was Gene Shu, not coincidentally, but who had been uh, the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers when they drafted Marvin. And Shu loved Marvin's talent. Uh, so even though, you know, there were all these stories floating around the league about, you know, Crazy things that Marvin had done. Uh, Shu offered him a tryout. He, he goes to the tryout and 
two days into the, at, at a at a rookie camp, uh, and two days into it, the the, the shoe uh, shoe cuts Marvin, uh, and of course Marvin's Marvin Marvin had been hadn't played for like five months. It was he was cut in February, and here we are in August. Marvin didn't, you know, Marvin gets this call out of the blue from Gene Shu, who says, why don't you, you know, I want, I want, why don't you try out for, for our team, I, you know, come to rookie camp and, and you know, work with the, the rookies and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll end up keeping you. Well, you know, Marvin was so out of shape. Uh, he showed up and even Gene Shu, who, you know, had, had just a ton of faith in Mark, had, had no choice but to cut him. I mean, uh, then, then, so Marvin goes home, goes home, starts feeling sorry for himself, using drugs, uh, and lo and behold, Gene Chu calls him again. And now it's, I think it's January of the next year. And, uh, uh, he, 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 Shu is desperate for help. He's, he's got some injuries. Uh, Bill Walton's on his team and Walton has some foot injuries. Uh, Marvin sort of needs a, uh, Shu sort of needs a, a big guy like Marvin, uh, to both back up, uh, Walton and maybe even play a little power for it. So Marvin says, okay, you know, sounds good. And he goes out there and, uh, you know, he, he, he but he's, his, by then he's, he, you know, we're talking about five years into his career, or four years into his career. And he's, all his talent has evaporated. Uh, he, he's just not the player that he was. Uh, he's staying sober. Uh, he, he's buddy, buddy with Walton. They, they've been good friends since college days, but he just couldn't couldn't do it. Couldn't couldn't perform. Uh, he'd play five minutes, ten minutes a game. Uh, gave a full effort, but his he had no legs. His legs were shot. Um, he he wasn't in shape. I mean, he he just just a shadow of his former self. And at the end of the year. He, uh, they, the Clippers still had a chance to make the playoffs, and they had one. They had to win uh, the final three games, and uh, I think they won the first. I think, but the second game, uh, they're down by a point. Uh, Marvin's on the court, uh, and uh, World Free, their guard, has the ball in the final ten seconds. And everybody thought for sure that World Free with his great outside shooting was going to take the final shot. And he passed it into Marvin, who's all alone, seven feet from the basket. And he puts up a shot that's a, a five-foot air ball. And the Clippers lose. They're eliminated. And uh, that that was Marvin's final, final NBA shot. Um uh, you know he played. He went on. He played uh, uh, played in the uh, CBA. Uh, played for the Detroit Spirits. 
not not to be confused with the spirits of St. Louis. This is this is a Continental Basketball Association, and he he's back using drugs heavily, and eventually he you know he's calling in sick for games, or, uh, and and wasn't producing. I mean, when they when this when the Detroit franchise signed Marvin, they fly him out and they have a big press conference and. Marvin, you know, is telling everybody that, you know, come see bad news play, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take this league by storm, uh, you know, and, uh, he just, he, he was, you know, he'd miss practices. He'd be late for, for games, uh, or just wouldn't show up for a game. And, um, uh, Eventually, the GM had no choice but to to, to let him go. Uh, he played another year in the CBA. He, he, he was terrible. Uh, he went overseas to uh, Trieste, Italy, uh, and uh, got fired from that team. Uh, and every, all along the way, everybody everybody suspects or knows that he's using drugs. And uh, so, so his career basically was the two years in St. Louis. I mean, the rest of it, he was he he was nothing. I mean, he was an average player or a below average player. And we're talking about a guy that anybody who saw Marvin play in college or saw him play in the ABA. Uh, would say this guy's a, a Hall of Fame guy, can't miss. Uh, but by the time he got to the NBA and the and the Detroit Pistons, uh, he he was like I say he he was an average player. That, he he just you know as, as Rod Thorne, who was a, who coached him in in St. Louis for a season. And uh, later became the vice president of the NBA for uh, discipline. Uh, as Rod Thorne once said, you know, uh, I've never seen a guy so talented uh, lose so much so fast. And, and, and that, that, that sums up his career. Did you, how, how close did you stay with him once you had finished that piece and he reached out to you? to say thank you for the, for the story. And he thought it was good. Did you guys stay in touch on a somewhat regular basis after that? Well, not while he was playing pro ball. I mean, I hear from him every now and then, um, but I didn't start hearing from him until, uh, you know, he, he, he had other, once he, once he was out of basketball and I want to say it was probably around 84 or 85, uh, then I'd hear from when he needed money. Uh, so would everybody, you know, all his friends would hear from when he, I swear, I, I tell people this, I swear Marvin had this little list and he'd, he'd write down the day he talked to you, the date that he talked to you. So, because he's calling everybody, he's calling all, all his friends and, you know, Hey, can you, can you loan me $50? And you knew you weren't getting the money. I mean, if you gave him the fifty dollars, you were not getting it back. I mean, he'd call, uh, he'd call all his former teammates, 
um, you know, I have a, a story in the book. Marvin would, when Marvin would have an NBA schedule, and he was living in Detroit, um, and, and you know, living in the ghetto, uh, really. So, some nights he'd sleep in in uh, in a junkyard. Uh, uh, some nights he'd sleep on somebody's porch, and they didn't even know he was there. Uh, you know, he 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 just was. He, he was, and he couldn't have weighed more than uh, 190 pounds. I mean, he wasn't eating right. Uh, he looked terrible. Uh, and and like I say, I mean, I I wasn't the only one that was sending Marvin money. I mean, I know uh, Kevin Stakem sent him money on a regular basis. I know Ernie DiGregorio sent him money on a regular basis. I know some of his... NBA teammates sent him money if they had it, uh, but it, it got so bad that I finally stopped because I said, "I said, look, Marvin, if you need money for food or for clothing, uh, go to go into a store, buy what you need, and have the the store manager call, call me." And uh, I said, "But I'm not going to send you money. I'll pay for your. I, I want to talk to the store manager, but I'll." I'll, I'll pay for your groceries. I'll pay for your, you know, any clothes you need. But I, I'm not going to do this anymore because I know that money's going for drugs. And uh, uh, it was just such a sad case. But but for what your, your question about, you know, how, how often did I, the only time I would really hear from Marvin for quite a while was when he needed money. And, and that I think that was the, the case with, with, with everybody, uh, you know, all his friends. And, he, and Marvin had a ton of friends. I mean, he just would, number one, I think he was embarrassed because he looked terrible. But number two, I mean, the drugs had taken over his life. I mean, he, he was really so hooked. Uh, ended up, uh, I want to say it was 1988 or 87, he ends up uh, in Texas, uh, in Houston, Texas, and he gets uh, he gets caught selling uh, cocaine to, to uh, some guy he knew. And so he's sentenced to five years in, in Texas prison, which is, you know, probably the worst prison system in the world. Uh, and he ends up serving two years and nine months in this prison. And uh, but the the only good thing is that, you know, the prison was tough. He, uh, you know, he, he the, the, nobody, you know, you couldn't get any drugs. So for at least two years and nine months, he, he was sober uh, and he put on a lot of weight in the right places. And he, he, for, for the first time in years. It actually, he actually looked like a basketball player. It almost seems like, well, I, I don't know. It seems like there were some occasions along his, I don't know, decline in the in the NBA and even the CBA. You were mentioning that uh, that general manager earlier, uh, the uh, uh, the spirits, right? I, he, you know, kind of, I think he kind of encapsulated. There was a story, as an article in the UPI, uh, where the general manager's name was Sam Washington. I think he basically said that. You know, we're going to cut him because, 
you know, he won't be obligated to be at practice and, and the games, and we won't be obligated to look for him. We can't, you know, he's not dependable. We, we can't can't trust him. We, well, you know, when, yeah, I mean, Sam's, Sam's dead now, but uh, he was a good guy. I mean, he was the guy that went and recruited recruited Marvin for the CBA. Uh, and he was a good guy, and he put up with all sorts of things with Marvin. And he finally... After Marvin had missed about three or four games in a row and uh, was late for practices, you know, he, 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 Sam lost it. He went in and he said, you know, look, uh, I got seven kids here who are all working their butt off to reach the NBA, and then I got you. And, you know, you're, you was, I brought you in here to be an example for these young kids, and I'm tired of sending posses out to look for you when you disappear. He said, you know, the, the free ride is over. Uh, you know, see you later. And and I, I had known Sam before then. Uh, and it's just coincidence that Marvin ended up signing with the, you know, Detroit Spirits. I, I didn't think Sam, uh, it didn't happen because, because I knew Sam. It just happened because Sam was thought it was a good idea. Marvin had played in Detroit with the Pistons, and it seemed like a a great public relations move. And if Marvin could play a lick, he'd he'd help the team. But as usual, Marvin just you know the drugs just took a hold of Marvin, and Marvin uh, you know Marvin ended up being a liability instead of being an asset. So I, I, I you know. I understood why Sam was doing what he was doing. No, I guess my point is that it seems like that was sort of almost one of the sort of real last, you know, chances. It seems like he didn't have any shortage, Marvin, of of chances. Uh, you're talking about a, a personality. You're talking about a, a talent, or at least a, a, was certainly abundant and evident in the early part of his career. It seemed like there were, I don't want to say no shortage, but there were certainly enough people who were willing to give him a chance and even indulge him a little bit, uh, a bit, a bit, uh, given all the idio- uh, idiosyncrasies and eccentricities. Uh, but then obviously the, you know, the drug part of it, right. It seems to me just to be so overwhelming and arguably, you know, I guess in today's pro game and stuff, you know, there are, there are programs and, and, and situations and various catch-alls and, and, and backstops, I guess, for that frankly probably didn't exist in certainly the ABA and maybe a little bit of, of, of it in the NBA and certainly probably not in the CBA, right? So it's almost like that support system that is probably around today, I mean, that maybe he could have benefited from just wasn't existent and or dependent on the goodness of those uh, who had brought him in and maybe just their inabilities, frankly, to kind of deal with it once they once they had brought him in. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's such a problem. Uh, the, so many guys from the NBA that you know went to rehab uh, there aren't many success stories I mean once you get hooked on that poison uh, there just aren't many success stories I mean uh, Roy Tarpley was an alcoholic and and he got into drugs and you know he ends up dying and uh, you know John Drew was an all-star he gets you know he goes to rehab and never resurfaces. Uh, you know, David Thompson had could have had a 
long career. I mean, David Thompson was still productive uh, when you know he, he played for Denver and he, he was an all-star every year. And then, you know, all of a sudden his, his numbers go down. You hear some horror stories about him. Uh, and he, you know, he doesn't last more than a couple of years after that. Michael Ray Richardson. Uh, there were just so many of these guys that, uh, you know, they all they all ended up in John Lucas's rehab. Uh, you know, Lucas was a, a point guard uh, for Houston, uh, and Marvin, you know, Marvin knew him from college days. But Lucas ends up the cops end up finding him in in, a, in an alley in Milwaukee. They played the Rockets had played a game in Milwaukee. The, the cops in Milwaukee end up finding him in, a, in an alley uh, with no shoes on, but three pair of wearing a suit, no shoes, and, and three pairs of sweat socks on each foot. And, uh, you know, uh, Bill Fitch was his coach. And, and, you know, Bill tried to help him but couldn't and ended up, you know, cutting him, which which Lucas says, you know, saved my, saved my life. I didn't realize the time it saved my life. And, you know, Lucas had, has a fantastic treatment center. Uh, Marvin ended up going there. You know, he, 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 he was successful in the program, spent, I believe it was six months in, in, in the rehab program. Lucas, when he's through his rehab, Lucas hires him as a counselor. Um, Marvin's first out-of-town assignment was to uh, – Roy Tarpley was banned for – probably for three or four years, but uh, they, they always say it was an indefinite suspension. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was for life, actually, but maybe you're maybe – Yeah, gonna... but they, you know, it, they say that, but it uh, – you know, it, it's like uh, uh, if you show that you – you know, that you're clean and sober, they'll – They'll let you back in, uh, but but with Tar- Tarpley, uh, he goes to Lucas's rehab. Uh, Marvin gets a call from Lucas, goes to the office. Lucas said, "I got an assignment for you." Uh, Roy is down in uh, uh, Wichita Falls, uh, Texas, uh, playing, trying to play in the CBA. Uh, I talked to him. He sounds real sketchy. Uh, I want you to fly down to Wichita Falls, babysit Roy, make sure he stays off the drugs uh, and the booze. So Marvin's all excited. It's his first out-of-town assignment. He goes home. He packs his stuff, uh, gets to the airport, and he misses his flight. And it was the only flight to Wichita Falls that day. By five minutes. So what does Marvin do? On his way back to his apartment, he stops at, at, a, at a strip joint. And he's so frazzled, his nerves are so shot, and he's, he knows he's going to disappoint Lucas because he missed that uh, the plane. He doesn't call Lucas and say, can you rebook my flight? Uh, I missed it by, by five minutes. I missed the plane. He goes in and has the uh, you know, five shots of whiskey. And that's all it took to, to send him off. Next thing you know, 
Marvin's on the prowl again. He's using cocaine. He's he's a mess. Uh, you know, and that was he he'd do this all through his you know, all through his adulthood. You know, he he ended up going out to California and, and uh this was this was still in the eighties. Uh Walton it was it was it had to be 80, 85. Uh, Walton calls him up and says, uh, Marvin, I want you to fly out to my and stay with me and my wife and the kids um, and help me train for, uh, for, for I have a chance to go to the Celtics. Uh, the Clippers have given me permission to uh, that if I can work out a trade, I can go to the Celtics and, instead of being stuck with this crummy Clipper team. So Marvin goes out there and Walton and Marvin work out for, for three or four months. And, uh, uh, you know, Walt, Walton ends up getting the trade. They, they trade Celtics trade Maxwell and a, uh, I think it was a first round pick for Walton. And, uh, you know, so Walton's heading to, to Boston and, uh, and Marvin's doesn't, know what he's going to do is so Walton says, wait, do you want to come with me to Boston? Maybe I can talk Red R back into giving you a tryout. And Marvin, Marvin says, if you, if you mention my name to Red R back, he'll, he'll send you on the first plane back here. Uh, that's how much he hates me, which was probably true because, you know, R back, like a lot of other people put a lot of faith in Marvin and got burnt. Um, so Marvin's out in California He's 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 a street bum. He's 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 living in, on the streets, uh, um, and his weight goes down to. I think they when they they measured him uh, at one point, and his his weight was 120 something pounds. I mean, it, it's hard for me to. I didn't see him, so it's hard for me to picture a guy that's six seven and a half. Weighing 120 something pounds. Uh, this is a guy who, uh, I guess, at his peak or when he was playing, you know, in his early days of career, was like at what 205, 210. Yeah, that was his playing weight. Yep. It's, it's just it's, that's and a, it was that's it, it was sad. I mean, yeah. he, he's broke. He's he's, uh, he's sneaking onto Walton's property at night, uh, and Walton had like a like a little uh, cabana out by his pool. And so Marvin would, there was a refrigerator near the pool. Marvin would, you know, have a couple of beers, pass out on the, in the, on the, on a, either on a chaise lounge or in the, uh, in the equipment, you know, Walton had like a, a weight room. Uh, so he, he'd sneak on without anybody knowing, you know, the kids would all be in the house and Walton's wife would be in the house and, uh, you know, so it, it was just so one horror show from another. I mean, Marvin ended up, you know, he, he's uh, he, he he's just looking for drugs. That's all he was doing. He wasn't eating anything. Uh, and at one point, this reporter from the San Diego uh, Union uh, tracks him down and uh, says, Marvin, I'd, I'd like to do a story on it. And Marvin said, uh, uh, you give me, I forget the figure, 
Uh, you give me a thousand bucks and I'll give you a story that will make you famous. I can tell you about the, uh, the women in the NBA. I can tell you about uh, homosexuality in the NBA. I can tell you about uh, uh, the craziest stories you're ever going to want to hear. Uh, you know, by the time, if, if you write down everything I say, you're going to have, you're going to have the greatest story you've, you've ever, you've ever seen. And the guy looks at Marvin and, and, and again, the guy tracked him down. So Marvin's, you know, Marvin's in, in the worst part of town. And he's, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's, he just looks a mess. And the guy reaches in to his wallet, pulls out a $10 bill, puts it in Marvin's hand and just says, good luck. And uh, walked away. But, you know, all these stories are, you know, he, he, he goes, I guess his final chance to make some decent money was when he got signed uh, by Trieste in the Italian league. And he goes over there and they're paying him big money. I mean, they're paying him, I think it was $40,000 a month. And, uh, and again, he somehow, he, he, he runs into these, uh, these drug dealers. They become fast friends. And uh, uh, as usual, Marvin starts missing practices, starts missing games. Uh, I mean, he, had, you know, the CBA paid peanuts. I mean, uh, he was in this, like I say, he was in the CBA for a couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he made more in, in one month over in Trieste than he'd make in a whole year in the CBA. And it was a great deal. He had no expenses. He had a free car, brand new, brand new car, uh, beautiful condo uh, overlooking a, a, a magnificent plaza in, in Trieste, which is a beautiful city. Uh, and, uh, you know, after about a, a month, uh, the team, you know, he, he doesn't show for a game and they let him go. Uh and uh, it's just, you know, I believe that was the last time he ever played basketball. Um, but, you know, like I say, I didn't, after he got out of basketball, I didn't see him that often. He was out in California. And, like I say, he spent two years and nine months in a Texas prison. Uh, I really didn't see a lot of him. I mean, uh, we talk but you know he'd call collect when he needed money or something like that when he, he he eventually he got sober he was doing a great job he got sober he called me up from Providence. he said why don't you come down i run this program for kids it's called the men to men program and uh i want you to see what i'm doing so i i came down there and it was a great program uh he he would give, give these Tremendous talks to these kids. I mean, didn't mince words. Uh, language was sort of rough, uh, but the kids got the point. You know, he'd uh, he'd tell a story about, and and these were all true stories because I I, I was familiar with a couple of the stories that he told me. But he told a story about how uh, a neighbor, uh, 
had a had a kid who uh, was shot, and uh, the neighbor asked Marvin if he'd go and visit the kid in uh, in the hospital. So Marvin goes and to visit the kid, and when he walks in, he was he wasn't prepared for what he was going to see. The kid, you know, had no brain function. He had a bullet in his his brain, and uh, he's talking to uh, a friend of the family, and the and the friend of the family says, "Yeah, when they when they found him, he had uh, he had five hundred dollars in his pocket, and we don't know where the money came from." And Marvin, you know. Marvin knew he knew it was drug money, and he looks down at the kid, and he sees on on the kid's right arm, uh, right down his arm is 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 the phrase "thug life." And Mar Marvin just you know, and he he to he tells the story to every group that he was that he was talking to. He says, you know, uh, yeah. The, the, this kid was using drugs. He was in the in, the, in the gangs, and uh, this is what you get a tattoo that says "Thug Life," and you die with five hundred dollars in your pocket. Uh, he said the kid had no brain function, uh, and he wasn't going to regain any brain function. He was dead uh, for all practical purposes. He just had a heartbeat. And uh, the way Marvin told the story to kids, I mean, he got through these kids. And uh, uh, he did a great job with these kids. I mean, when I was doing the book, I talked to about six or seven of these high school kids that uh, had gone through his program, and they all were doing great. I mean, uh, some of them are, are still doing great. Uh, you know, so Martin was making a difference. But, and, and, and he was doing so well that, the owner, the owner, the former owner of the St. Louis Spirits, Ozzie Silna, uh, bought him a, a, a truck, uh, bought him, gave him money to rent an office, uh, hire a secretary. And for a couple of years, Marvin was doing great. I mean, he was having a positive influence on people. He, you know, I, I went down there a couple of times just to uh, see him and uh, he, he'd taken on a ride around town and you know people would yell yell to him hey Marvin you're doing a great job keep it up bud and you know and he uh, he he was doing fantastic and then all of a sudden Marvin started disappearing and uh, you know he, he went he fell off the wagon you know, and, and the story almost gets, I, I, I know it gets monotonous, but to hear, I mean, he just, it, with, with drug addicts, I mean, that's how life is. You, you know, you, you, it's one step forward and three steps backward. He ended up, you know, cleaning up his act uh, and calls me up one day and he says, I, I need a place to stay. And uh, uh, this was 19, no, I'm sorry. This was uh, 2000 and 2013, I want to say. Uh, so I said to him, well, you can come up and stay here, but, you know, there's going to be some rules, Martin. I said, no booze, uh, 
you know, no drugs. You can you can use my I have, I have like a little apartment in, in my garage. I said, you can use the apartment in the garage. So he comes up and, you know, everything's going great. He's 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 back. He reopened his uh, his men to men charity. Uh, everything was things couldn't have been better. He, he, I hardly ever saw him, but when I did see him, he was great. He was clean. He was sober. He was working with kids. He was going to AA. You know, matter of fact, he, he he said to me, "Why don't you come to my AA meeting tomorrow? I'm getting my my three year chip." So I said, "Yeah." So I went and. Uh, you know, the he, he was just tremendous. He, he was doing a great job, and I thought, you know, God, he's finally over this. He's finally conquered this. And uh, again, I mean, everything was. Uh, I mean, he he had been sober for well, yeah, three years, three years plus. Anyhow, he, he goes down to Providence to see his mother, and he meets up with this this young girl. She she looks like she's about 20, 21 years old. This is this is Marvin's version of the story, and uh, so and she wants to be a model. So Marvin's girlfriend uh, is a, was a former model. So Marvin says. I'll meet you in, in, in this uh, in this coffee shop tomorrow, and maybe my girlfriend can give you some tips on how to get into the model industry. So he does that, and uh, I don't even know anything about it, but you know he's he's doing it. Not, didn't seem anything wrong with it, but it turns out that the girl is only seventeen years old, and she goes to the cops. And says Mar Marvin propositioned her. So, and I don't know anything about any of this. I'm, you know, I'm sitting at home in, in Framingham. He's down in in Providence, and uh, with with his with his girlfriend. His girlfriend's about forty years old. I mean, I, I know her. As things turn out, you know, she goes. To this this seventeen year old goes to the cops and say, this this teacher because he was he, he actually met her in uh, he, he was teaching one of his classes to these young, young kids you know ghetto kids and they're he's 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 working his magic with the men to men program and doing good work but he happens to meet this see this 17 year old girl in the hallway and he you know, he says, uh, that's where he first met her. She goes to the cops. The cops ask her uh, if she'll wear a wire and to uh, meet, Mar meet Marvin the next day, uh, which, which she had planned to do. And uh, so she meets Marvin at this little coffee shop and of course, the cops walk in. They, I, I've listened to the. I actually, I actually have the transcripts of the 
the conversations. There, there's nothing incriminating on the on the tapes that, that I've listened to. Uh, but the cops arrest him and charge him with uh, uh, solicitation of a minor. You know, he, he comes back and he's yelling, screaming at me, telling this was a setup. They were out to get me. And I'm not really buying it. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I wasn't there, but I'm not really buying it. I'm like, you must have said something to this 17-year-old for her to go to the cops. And he goes, no, I, I didn't. And he said, I was just trying to help this girl. Uh, so anyhow, this he gets a real sharp lawyer. Um, and I'm getting near the end of the story on this, Tim. I, I don't know. I don't want to bore you to death. No, I mean this is this is it's tragedy, and uh, you know, I, 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 it's it's painful to hear, but um, I, it's still very much part of the story, sadly. So he uh, he gets this lawyer. He's he's telling everybody he was set up, um, and he uh, he's starting to feel sorry for himself. I can, I can you know, I, I hear I he, he's he's in my garage, which is you know at the end of my house. It's it's attached to the house, but it's, I can I can hear him from from the other end of the house. He's yelling, screaming, and anybody's talking to, he's telling them the cops are setting me up, and 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 he's becoming unnerved. So then he starts going out late at night, and I'm uh, I'm suspicious that he might be using. Um, I find a uh, I go to take the garbage out one night, and the damn garbage can must have weighed about 60 pounds. And I go, what the heck is in here? And I open it up and it's just filled with beer bottles. And I, I, I go in and I say, Marvin, we had a condition when you moved here. No booze, no beer, no alcohol, no drugs. Oh, I can handle a few, few beers. They said, no, you can't, Marvin. You're, you're an alcoholic and you're a drug addict. You can't handle beers. Said, okay, okay, I'll stop. Well, you know, it, it's a couple of weeks go by. I come home. I had been out somewhere. I come home. It's late. It's probably 11, 31, 12 o'clock. And my, I, I go to turn into my driveway, and my, my headlights hit this car. Uh, the car is on my lawn. I mean, it's not even close to the driveway. And it's Marvin's SUV. And so I get out of my car. The, his music is he's blasting the stereo. Uh, and he's passed out behind the wheel. It takes me about 15 minutes to wake him up. I thought he was dead. But I'm, I'm punching him. I'm, uh, you know, I'm shaking him. And finally he wakes up and I go, Marvin. I said, I don't know what you're on, but... This shit's gonna stop. I mean, I can't, I can't take this anymore. Uh, so, I, I say to him, I said, "Look, you have to check yourself into rehab. If you don't, if you're not gonna go to rehab, then you're gonna have to find yourself another place to stay." So he ended up going to rehab. When he gets out of rehab, instead of coming back to my place, he goes down to his mother's place in Providence, which is a major mistake, because every drug dealer. In Providence knows Marvin and Marvin knows every drug dealer. So 
I can, when he calls me up, I can tell he's he's high. He's, he's slurring his words. Uh, you know, it's just um, it's very hard. You know, it's just very hard to uh, to figure out what what I could, I can't help him anymore. I, I mean, he's slurring his words. He's just acting irrational. Uh, I mean, he might call me at, at ten o'clock, talk to me for a half hour, hang up. And then call me back at 11 o'clock and not even remember the conversation. So I say, Marvin, you got to get yourself some help. He goes, no, I'm all right. He says, Mike, he said, next Monday, I have, an, I have my court date for this solicitation of a minor. Said, you know it's a setup, don't you, Mike? I said, Marvin, if you tell me it's a setup, I, I believe you. And he says, uh, I need you in my corner. Can you come down Monday? The the case is on for 10 o'clock. I said, yeah, I'll be down. Now, almost a year had passed since the time he got arrested for the solicitation charge and his court date. So I come down, go into court, uh, ask the clerk of courts what what courtroom is the Marvin Barnes case in? The guy tells me. I go up there. Uh, I go to the, the clerk again, and I said, is this where uh, Marvin Barnes has a, a hearing? And he looks at his docket, and he goes, uh, well, it was, but his name's crossed off the list. And I go, oh, Jesus. He says he must have called in sick or something. So I get in my car. I'm driving back. I get a call from his ex-wife. Um, he had gotten married to his high school sweetheart years and years ago, and they got divorced. But uh, she still, you know, still was a good friend of his. So she's calling me. I pick up the phone. Hey, Deb, how you doing? And he goes, she's crying. She's hysterically crying. And she said, uh, they found Marvin at, in some guy's apartment uh he od'd he's dead i go oh jesus I said, you know um and i always i always suspected you know other guys guys like Stakem and and uh ernie de gregoria we, we always said you know uh, our worst fear was that we we're going to find that find him uh in some you know in some street gutter dead and this was was pretty close to it. I guess the place that uh, that he was at was a, a real dump. Uh, but anyhow, I mean that was it. I mean, uh, four months later, I, I the coroner called me and I'd asked her to call me. Uh, I want to know what, what he what exactly he died from, and, and you know she said that he died from a acute heroin and cocaine intoxication. And uh, that was it, you know, just a, a waste of a life. And and if you if you got to know Marvin's personality, you couldn't help but like the guy. I mean, like I say, uh, it caused a lot of people a lot of problems. I mean, teammates, coaches, general managers. But, but in doing this book, I talked to almost every one of them and. Nobody had a bad word to say about Marvin. He was a likable guy. I mean, uh, 
for for all this bravado about being a gangster type, I mean, Marvin Marvin didn't even get any fights in in, in basketball. I mean, he he just he wasn't a fighter. He didn't in uh, he wasn't a a guy. You know, he wasn't a guy who got in arguments with referees. Didn't happen. I mean, Marvin was a uh, you know teammates loved him. Uh, but, but nobody could help him. Nobody could help him. I mean, he had to help himself, and that just didn't never happen. I mean, you know, he'd help himself for a couple of months, maybe a year, maybe two years. But sooner or later, that uh, cocaine just overpowered him. I mean, it was a sad, sad thing to to see. Uh, that's an amazingly personal, you know, story, too, uh, of yours and in, in, in uh in his last years, I, I, I guess as we sort of round it up here, I, I, you know, besides sort of the idea of, of a wasted life and it clearly it's just tragic. Right. Um, and you know, but he was certainly known for, uh, some, some very interesting ex- escapades, uh, even before sort of the drug use and whatnot, his personality was, you know, certainly something to behold. But I mean, I guess having done all of this and, and, and I think we kind of just scratched the surface in terms of some of his, uh, his uh, eccentricities, shall we say, and missing airplanes and all that kind of stuff. Some of them quite humorous, actually. How do you frame all of this? Because in some respects, right, you know, as, as we go back and look at the ABA, for example, I mean, there's there's nobody who knows or has read about or understands or maybe even lived through uh, the ABA that doesn't uh, have some memory of and or, uh, you know, some maybe even little special kind of fondness for uh, the name Marvin Barnes. What is it? I guess could you? What is it of this story? I mean, he it, it's he he's still known and, and remembered. I maybe for you know some of his exploits, but I mean, I besides sort of a wasted talent. I mean, is there what else? I guess can we take from from all this this story? It's it's tragedy for sure, but um, there's got to be some glimmers of 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 goodness that 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 lives on from it too, though. No. Yeah, I mean, I, like I say, I mean. Uh... You know, he was beloved by teammates. I mean, Ernie DiGregorio, you know, who was quite a basketball player, uh, he had a, a unique friendship with Marvin. I mean, they uh, they were best friends for years and years and years. And when Marvin died, Ernie was so broke up, he couldn't even go to the funeral. He was, you know, he just, it, it, this, it was a tragedy for him. It was a real tragedy because he, you know, like, like all his friends, but especially Ernie and Kevin Stakem. I mean, they were rooting for Marvin, to, you know, so badly to, uh, you know, just make a comeback that would that would, you know, be lasting. I mean, the guy was the guy had a fantastic personality. He 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 was a quote machine. I mean, the story about, you know, the I don't want to get on no time machine. You know, where he's 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 taken off for. A, the team's going to Memphis, and then the next morning they're going to back to St. Louis. And uh, Marvin looks at the itinerary, and it shows that the, the plane going back to St. Louis leaves at twelve oh one and gets in at twelve. And Marvin goes, "How can how can how can that be? This is something wrong with the itinerary." You know, Bob Costas says, "No, Marvin, we're." We're going from Eastern to Central time. You you gain an hour, so you're you actually arrive a minute 
before you take off. And Marvin's like, I ain't getting on no time machine. And it, it really, you know, it was really, uh, uh, I, I mean, the guys, he just, he, he was quick witted. I mean, uh, Marvin, you know, Marvin as, as the, as the, uh, as the big gun on that spirits team, um, they wanted Marvin to take a leadership role. Marvin's like, uh, some reporter mentions it to him. And Marvin says, oh, I'm tired of being known as the franchise. You know, uh, it's eat your, eat your vegetables, Marvin. Drink your milk, Marvin. Be on time, Marvin. Do this, Marvin. Do that. I, I mean, he, he, he just was a, he had a quote for everything. I mean, he, uh, he was a funny, funny guy. And, and you know, just I, like I said, I mean, he had all these teammates that, you know, you go through the years and I talked to, I, I know I talked to everybody on the spirits and I, I certainly talked to all the coaches and the GM and the owner and same with the Celtics. I mean, they all were rooting for him. I mean, you couldn't help but like the guy. And and it, it just was the demons finally got to him. I mean, he, he fought and he fought and he fought. Um like he says, you know, he was in rehab 22 times, went to rehab 22 times, and 22 times he failed uh, to achieve sobriety. And that's, you know, uh, he had he had all these people rooting for him, and he, he just um, just could, couldn't make it work. Couldn't make it work. Well, I mean, the ultimate free spirit, and, and sadly, um, you know, that spirit uh, – you know, got uh, extinguished probably way too early, like like many um, addicts, and and you know, wind up right. And um, you know, I I I I didn't know much about sort of the personal intersection between you and and him. Um, but this book is is um, is really something. I mean, it, it plays on a lot of different levels. I mean, obviously, there's the nostalgia aspect of the ABA, and you know, the the prodigious talent that he. He had for sure, especially in his early early part of his career, but also you know the tragedy and and you know the the story that's all too common, right? Uh, regardless if you're a, a pro basketball player or frankly just you know an average an average Joe or, or a woman in 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 the world, you know, just trying to make ends meet and and drugs uh, doesn't really sort of know any any real boundary, uh, nor does it play any favorites. And and there's a lot of uh, uh, lessons to be learned and a lot of uh, sort of tragic. Uh, you know, storylines to all this. Why don't you tell our audience, uh, get, let's do some promo here for the book. I know it came out uh, uh, in paperback, so obviously uh, it, it's been uh, well-regarded. I know it's uh, exceedingly well-reviewed on, on places like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, but why don't you tell our audience uh, uh, about the book, where you can find it, and God forbid we'll actually help you sell a few more books for, for people to truly understand even more deeply the uh, uh, this tragic story that, uh, that you've uh, remembered so well and, and written so well. Well, thank you. Uh, it's available on Amazon, at least the, the paperback. I, I think the uh, the hard the hard copies is is went through two printings, and I believe they're sold out. Uh, but the paperback, I know they they they're in the second printing of the paperback, and they they just put up a a notice that uh, uh, they're getting another shipment in. Uh, I have nothing to do with that, but, uh, so I think you could, you could buy it on Amazon. It's called bad news and, um, uh, it's, 
not your typical basketball story. It's it's more a uh, a personality story about you know about a basketball player who just fought and fought and fought his demons and and finally ended up losing. It's it's a tough book to read, but it, it's you know I um, it's helped some people. I know I know that I, I've talked to people uh, who had a a son, a daughter, a father who had, you know, either a drinking problem or a drug problem. And they can relate to how do you reach an addict? And, uh, you know, I, and I, 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 in doing the book, I talked to a, uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a DEA agent. And I said, what can I do to help this guy? And, uh, uh, the DE agent basically said to me, you know, you know, you can offer them encouragement, you can offer them advice, but he said, don't offer them sympathy and don't offer them money. Um, and, and you really won't be able to help. You can't help an addict until the addict hits rock bottom. And, and unfortunately, in, in Marvin's case, rock bottom turned out to be uh, his overdose, his, his death. You know, and so many people go through this. I mean, it's it's an epidemic. I mean, uh, the the numbers of, you know, people that are that are dying from from drug overdoses, uh, it's just staggering. Uh, And, you know, I think we're you know, I think the the government and, and the police are doing, you know, they're making progress, but it's just uh, you know now you have all these street drugs these these uh, there's a name for them but I, I and it escapes me at the moment but you have all these illegal drugs that are uh, that drug peddlers are buying from China and uh, kids don't even realize what they're taking and until it's too late until the kids die and and uh, you know, it's not just kids. The, the drug problem is so uh, out of control that, you know, the, you meet a, adults. I mean, Marvin was 62 when he died. You can be 10 or you can be 60. And, and you know, the drugs just uh, can take over your life and, and, and ruin it. And it's tough. The only thing I can say is that as somebody that's been through it for a while, uh not me personally, but I, I, watching Marvin, it, it's, it, it was just torture to go through. It's torture to see somebody you care about basically thrown away chance after chance after chance, uh, opportunity after opportunity. And, uh, you know, he, he, he just didn't care. I mean, in the book, I, I put a line that... Uh, Marvin was so became so addicted to to cocaine while he was a player, uh, while he was a professional basketball player, that he viewed the sport as just a hobby. I mean, his, his priority was getting high. I mean, uh, that 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 he didn't care. He lost all his pride. I mean, he didn't he didn't care how he performed on the court. He was just co- there to collect a paycheck. I would never have said that about Marvin 
after his first two years because he put, was anybody that was destined to be a Hall of Fame player. It was Marvin, and the drugs took that all away. All right. Uh, not always the most uh, jovial of, uh, of conversations on this show, but we, uh, you know, we try to span the uh, the range of emotions when it comes to uh, teams and leagues and all the various stories around them. And uh, our thanks to uh, Mike Carey for that uh, uh, very sad tale of, a, of a, frankly, a lost talent uh, and one, frankly, that uh, could have been greater, could have been brighter uh, had it not been for uh, the ills of drug addiction. Uh, And then some. The book uh, by Mike Carey is called Bad News, The Turbulent Life of Marvin Barnes, Pro Basketball's Original Renegade. Uh, It is published by Sports Publishing. Uh, It is uh, uh, a very uh, deep, it's an engrossing work, uh, and um, you will enjoy it. You will learn from it, uh, and uh, you will get a sense, frankly, of some of the craziness of the uh, American Basketball Association, uh, some of the players, certainly, uh, and uh, the unique uh, and troubled talent of one Marvin Barnes. Uh, we thank Mike for uh, his this uh, uh, great conversation, obviously a, a personal one uh, near the end of Marvin's uh, life. And, um, you know, we appreciate uh, him sharing that story uh, with us and, uh, and with you. Uh, and I uh, highly encourage you to read more uh, and learn from the story uh, called Bad News by Mike Carey. I highly recommend it. You can find uh, a convenient link to the book uh, on our website, of course, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just search up this episode. I think it's number 137, Holy Mackerel, uh, with Mike uh, Carey, uh, and you will find a, a link to Amazon. And when you do so, you'll be giving us uh, a couple of nickels or dimes of love and keeping the uh, the lights on for our little show. By doing so, we appreciate that. Uh, and I'm sure Mike will appreciate it as well, of course. And uh, what else? At uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com, you will find a whole host of other things to uh, see and do, uh, including literally all of the other episodes we've done to date. You can download them, embed them on your website, do whatever you want with them. That's uh, legal, of course. What else? You can find uh, all of our social media links, of course, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You find find us on Twitter. You can find us there at goodseatsstill. Uh, you will find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And yes, you will find a page devoted to us uh, on Facebook as well. You can also uh, send us some email from the site or send it to us directly if you'd like. And that email address is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Also, while you're on the site, if you want to sign up for our weekly newsletter, you could do that too. Just find the link and you'll get uh, whisked away to a form and that will uh, hopefully get you signed up for our, uh, our little weekly uh, blast that uh, tells you a couple of days in advance of uh, what episode uh, is in the shoot for uh, this coming week. And uh, one last thing, of course, we want to say our uh, tremendous thanks, as always, uh, to our pal Jerry Payne, the good doctor, uh, down in suburban Atlanta. We appreciate his efforts and that of Podfly Productions, uh, the place to go to get all your podcasting needs in the editing and uh, production worlds uh, figured out. Uh, they are the best at what they do. I highly encourage them and their services. If you're trying to get into the podcast game, you can find out about more. Sorry, you can find out more about them. There you go. Podfly Productions at podfly.net. Okay, it's been a long day. Let's uh, send you off uh, into the ether and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, We appreciate your listening and uh, thanks uh, so much. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.